This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hello there and welcome to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. It is a Thursday, it is the 22nd of December and this is what we've got for you today. Kicking off with a chat about uh, Christmas music royalties with our favourite Christmas music songs. I promise you there is a business angle and, and we might just hear a bit of Justin Bieber as well. Again, Wall Street Journal covering that. I promise you, it is a business story. What else have we got for you? We are talking about 2023 and crystal ball gazing. The guys at Tenio, the communications firm, have done a global survey of business leaders. And the bad news is they are gloomy about the prospects for next year. We'll hear from their managing director, Nicholas McDonough. What else? Big focus on real estate this morning. Sarah Hewardine from Hauser joined us in the studio in festive dress, red dress, and a pair of antlers, no less. Talking about her big five bold predictions for 2023. And finally, uh, staying with the Christmas theme, we've been looking at turkeynomics all this week. This time we look at turkeys that are brought to you. The guys from Jones the Grocer, Peter Green, their Director of Business Operations, joins us live. But first of all, let's jump straight into those Christmas royalties. Talking now about one man who could be looking to make $200 million in or around Christmas uh, from his music, not from his Christmas songs, although he does conveniently have one. I should be playing in the winter snow, but I'm a be under the mistletoe. Justin Bieber making headlines in the Wall Street Journal, and that doesn't happen every day. What's the Beeb been doing that's got the attention of the financial journalists? Uh, the Beeb is looking at doing what a lot of artists, notably older than him, have been doing, and that is selling his music catalogue. He's in discussions, according to the WSJ, um, with the Blackstone-backed Hypnosis songs capital. They're a company um, that have been buying up back catalogues from musicians, most notably uh, Beyonce and Barry Manilow. Um, 200 million they say is what the deal could be worth if he sells his music. And this has been something of a trend over the last couple of years, haven't it? Um, Artists, I say cashing out, but basically realising the value of the music that they have produced whilst still alive i'm looking at the ranking of the most expensive or valuable of these back catalogs that have been sold and okay gonna give you a guess who do you think is the most expensive tom Urquhart, first of all the most expensive back catalog ever sold belonged to bruce springsteen Bradley scott gonna be my guess which when you're both right He is top of the charts by some distance. Half a billion dollars Bruce Springsteen sold his from. In equal second, and there were three of them in equal second, Tina Turner, Bob Dylan, and Phil Collins. Mm. I'm not sure how to put Phil Collins in that league, but there you go. Thank you, the gorilla, the Cadbury's Dairy Milk advert. (laughs) Well, it's the adverts that make a lot of the money. Is it really? Yeah. So the reason, there's a number of reasons that this is is done. Um, it gives investors something random to uh, invest in, um, and that's the royalties from the artists themselves. So the reason that companies that are backed by the likes of Blackstone want to do this um, is because it's not just airplay, it's adverts as well. So when a Phil Collins song gets picked up by 
Cadbury, was it? Uh, this is years ago, but yeah. Or whoever, um, and gets used. That's a bit of a payday um, for them and for the people that they then get to invest in this portfolio. For the artists, it's a way to get a bit of a payday and also to potentially um, sort of stop any pain in lawsuits for um, their relatives when they pass because it's, you know, something that, that then belongs to your estate once you're gone um, and that can can cause a lot of trouble so the idea being that if you realize all the money first you can a spend it um, and b distribute it and, and deal with it like you like yeah exactly tina turner's kids don't have to worry about if she has them i don't know uh, about royalties it's just they've got the cash and they invest it with i don't know Morgan Stanley or whatever it is, and that's fine. And and they do what they will. Uh, others on the list, David Bowie at number five, equal with Sting, quarter of a billion dollars. And then one of your favourite artists, number seven, Ryan Tedder ah. from One Republic. Not One Republic, nowhere near in the league of those people, but of course Ryan Tedder, also a songwriter for the likes of Beyonce. He wrote Halo, didn't he? He did. And Adele, what was the Adele song he wrote? I forget now, but... Yeah, he's he's done a lot of stuff, and he when he performs, he tends to play a lot of the things that he's written for other people, and you suddenly sit there, oh, well, I didn't need that. Um, I wonder if Justin Bieber could be the first person to sell his catalogue twice. He's 28. Presumably, he's got more music in him. Oh, that's a very interesting point. Would they get the rights to future Bieber music? I don't, I don't know. I don't know what's on the table, but $200 million um, is the deal, which... Well, wouldn't put him in the, the top five for that list. It wouldn't. It would put him equal seventh with Ryan Tedder. But as you say, he's, you know, Bob Dylan's 80. He, it, it is the back catalogue you're buying. Uh, Bieber's got uh, a ways to go. Because he's absolutely at the top of his game at the moment, Justin Bieber. I mean, you'd put him up there with, you know, your Taylor Swift of this world and your BTS as the world's top global musicians at the moment. You'd be foolish to sell the stuff you hadn't made yet. Because, I mean, what if you just created the best Christmas hit of all time? Yeah, that would be very hard for anyone to price, wouldn't it? If you've got an accountant or an investment banker trying to price the value of the future catalogue of Justin Bieber, what if he, you know, suddenly decides, oh, I'm going to retire to... Uh, yeah, tomorrow. Kibbutz or something like that. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, in, in, fair enough. G- good on him. Good luck to him. But but no. So he's making money out of the back catalogue. But, Tom, he's not making money out of merch at H&M, is he? No. He's in a bit of a... A contretemps between him and H&M. H&M have removed a Justin Bieber-inspired collection after it was branded trash by the singer on the gram. The 28-year-old said he'd not approved the collection, which included T-shirts, jumpers, tote bags and phone accessories. Posting on his Instagram story, the singer uh, urged people not to buy the items, which he said were being sold without his permission or approval. For their part, the company said, look, proper procedures were followed, but they've now pulled the line. As in removed it from the... Uh, yeah, pulling this removed, morning on the business breakfast. removed it from their stores, so it's not available. Um, so he will not be, be benefiting from that, whether he does sign it off or not. So what else is catching our attention this morning? Not much. Um, well, I'm looking at... Some... <laughs> <laughs> Honesty's a virtue, Tom, but probably not on the radio. Yeah. Charles Sabraj. He's got, he's, Charles Sabraj. Who's Charles Sabraj? I have no idea. Do you remember that... Thank you very much. Yeah, uh, producer Shruti, get it in and one. Um, he was. Do you remember that TV series, The Serpent, that everyone was watching the other day? Yes, because it involved New Zealand. Uh, okay, yeah. So he was the guy that was accused of uh, 
killing people in Nepal, backpackers, mm-hmm. um, uh, stealing from them. Um, he's going to be released from dra- jail over in Nepal. And Nepal's top court yesterday ordering his release uh, on uh, because of ill health uh, and the amount of time that he's served already as well. Uh, the infamous um, French Charles the Serpent Sabrage. Uh, you're listening to The Business it's Breakfast. Dark, sorry. Ah, <laughs> <for> Christmas. <laughs> yeah. um, the Grinch, you could always rely on yeah, him, can't night, you? Just looking at the green room and everyone's in their Christmas finery as well. Rich has got Sarah up in just a few minutes. She's got her antlers on, Rich. Yeah. Yeah. We've got, we've got um, yeah, one of our guests has brought his daughter today who's in full Santa costume. So it's all happening here. Tom will bring the mood down, though. Yeah, there I am talking about the serpent. <laughs> Great, nice. Christmas fair. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Right opportunity for us as we come towards the end of the year to look back at the year that was, but also look ahead to the year that might be as well. Uh, what are the buzzwords of 2022? What are the main themes? Obviously, we've seen uh, booms here in a number of industries uh, here in the UAE, across <coughs> the region as well, uh, which has been in stark contrast to what's happening in other environments around the world. So what do CEOs make of this? Uh, are we going to see a bursting of said bubble? Are we going to see a slowdown in business here? Well, according to recent data, leading CEOs have a gloomy outlook on the economic climate for the first half of 2023. That data comes from Tenure, who released the results of its survey of over 300 global public company CEOs and institutional investors, uh, representing approximately $3 trillion worth of combined company and portfolio value. Let's dive into those numbers now with the Senior Managing Director, uh, Member of Global Management Committee at Tenure, Nicholas McDonough, who joins us live on Microsoft Teams this morning. Morning, Nick. Morning to you. Good morning, Tom. How are you? Very well indeed. So thanks very much indeed for the data uh, as we come uh, cruise to the end of 2022. What's the macroeconomic outlook? Well, I mean, if you, it's, it's a set of a tale of two parts, really. If you look at um, the survey from global CEOs that we just conducted, um, over 73% of them have quite a gloomy outlook for the first half of next year. But that's in contrast to because the survey also took into account some global institutional investors as well. They have a different view on that. Their their first half outlook for the first half of next year is actually quite positive. So sort of a tale of two halves there um, with both CEOs having a different view to investors. In terms of, I mean, what's interesting about this one, it's not just uh, uh, meaner CEOs that you've looked at. You've looked at CEOs from across the globe as well. We've got used to globalization in recent times. You bring to the table the suggestion of deglobalization. Tell me more. Yeah, so that's one of the one of the big headlines from the report is that there's general consensus between CEOs and institutional investors that deglobalization is something that's now not only just real but is actually underway. Um, and that's an interesting point of view is from, from CEOs as well. If they're looking at their businesses and they're seeing what the impact of deglobalization is going to be on their businesses. Um, I think in some cases, investors might see, which maybe look at their the reason for some of their, their investors' optimism, is that investors see opportunities coming from deglobalization. But from a CEO's point of view, who has sort of fixed assets, operations in place all around the world, supply chain, et cetera, et cetera. That, you know, that creates quite a significant challenge for these businesses, but obviously also opportunities as well. Also been a sort of big urge in recent years, no more so than this year, for CEOs to innovate, to think outside the box as well. Um, however, as Richard was just mentioning there, the cryptocurrencies has come in for much 
criticism uh, throughout the last 12 months as well. Is there still that appetite for innovation? Yes. Yeah, so the survey also looked at uh, innovation and disruption of tech, dis- disruption in particular. And the, the, the results from that were that CEOs of large global firms, and, and we're talking about revenues here of between one and, and 10 billion, um, their view was that they were taking quite a cautious approach when it came to the adoption of new technologies. And in particular, things like crypto, um, the adoption of the metaverse and things like that. However, uh, institutional investors took the opposite view. They were looking for these CEOs to really try and sort of get ahead, get their hand around the adoption um, of some of these new technologies and how they were looking at to bring these into their businesses as well. So, again, you know, the headline figure there really is, is that CEOs taking a little bit more of a cautious approach about jumping into some of these things. Some of that might have been justified with, you know, what we've seen recently with the um, with the, the collapse in crypto and some of the issues there as well. So, again, interesting. But investors or CEOs a little bit more cautious about diving into some of these new areas. Environmental, social and governance, or ESG, uh, as it's well known in the business world as well, is also key to sort of businesses moving forward. Again, because it's become more and more part and par- parcel of policy for businesses as well. Will that continue to be the case? Yeah, very much so. I mean, um, it was pretty, the report was pretty unequivocal about that as well. CEOs, like every sort of senior executive and including investors as well. ESG is just, it's not just a buzzword. It's something that's here to stay. It's been here for quite a while, but the E, the S and the G side of it as well. Um, in particular, we saw that CEOs, 15% of them um, were looking to almost prioritize ESG over performance. But the majority, I think of over 60% as well, are really trying to balance both their business performance and their financial performance with their ESG responsibilities as well. Um, one of the other interesting facts that I think that came out of the um, the report is that uh, one in, I think it was one in five CEOs think that they're only prepared for some of the social changes that are ahead that might impact their business as well. So, you know, 20% of CEOs really only thinking that they're, that they're ready for what's ahead of that. And we've seen this the last couple of years as well with right across the ESG uh, landscape whether it's things like, for example, in the US with Black Lives Matter or with the entire sustainability movement. So, you know, massive um, impact on CEOs in terms of how they're going to run their business and the way ahead. One of the reasons or one of the ways to address those those social issues is having the right team in place as well. When it comes to people, what does the data tell us? Have, the, have CEOs got the right teams in place? Yeah, so as I, as I said, you know, one in five um, only, one in five CEOs only think that they have the right senior management team skills and capabilities in place right now to tackle some of these emerging uh, ESG issues that they see in the horizon. And then at the same time, the investors um, looking to CEOs to ensure that they have got the right team in place as well. And the C- and the investors' view was a little bit different from the CEOs. CEOs, as we saw earlier on with things around disruption not so willing to to dive into and be the first mover in terms of the adoption of some of these some of these changes and i suspect that probably goes for certain esg um issues as well and um, but investors very much looking um, and expecting their ceos to be ready to have the right people in place and have the right skills capabilities in place particularly around technology and as i said earlier you know with the, the investors looking a little bit more bullish in terms of the adoption of some of these new technologies one thing that they were both 
both the investors and CEOs were were agreed on was the adoption and use of AI in particular. Mm. And that's something that we saw um, both agreeing that this is something that they got to get their hands around. Uh, Nicholas, we're going to leave it there. Thanks so much indeed for your time this morning. Nicholas McDonough is the Senior Managing Director, Member of Global Management Committee at Tenier. You can visit their website now. Just check out the Vision 2023 survey to find out more. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. A special festive edition of Property Advice through with houses. Sarah Hewardine, Head of Marketing, with us in the studio. Morning, Sarah. Good morning. And if you're watching on Dubai One TV, you will see that Sarah is wearing a red dress and antlers this morning to get in the Christmas spirit. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> very festive. <laughs> it's good that you're here for Christmas in Dubai. Thanks for joining us this morning. You are here with your five bold, audacious predictions for what will shape the property market here in 2023, starting with China. Why do you think China is your top of your list of bold predictions? Yeah, China is number one. A couple of reasons. So if we look before to pre-COVID times, uh, Chinese investors were always within the top five, um, very active, especially in uh, more prime communities like downtown and marina. What we've seen over the last few years, because of the um, lockdowns in China, we have noticed that the Chinese investors have dropped down the list of foreign buyers into the UAE. What I do think we'll see next year is a return of that. We've already noticed it in the last couple of months. More Chinese buyers are coming in, more businesses are coming in and buying real estate. And I think that is something where we'll see them re-enter the top five investors as we go into 2023. Will that happen before they return physically on flights from Beijing and Guangzhou and Shanghai? Or will we have to wait till they can come here, see these places kick the tyres and breathe the air? I think it'll be in a couple of stages. I think like the first stage is them being able to, you know, lockdowns have been lifted there, them being able to move around, see fund managers and see quite a few people in terms of their investments. Then I think we'll see another wave when they can actually come here and buy units. So I think we'll see that in two phases. So let's hope next year, again, it depends how COVID rolls out in China uh, with low immunity. So it is to be seen, but I feel like China will definitely re-enter the top five by the end of next year. And just remind us, what's the sweet spot for a Chinese buyer? Is it half a million dollars in international city is it dirhams in international city is it is it two million dirhams in the marina or is it a hundred million dirhams on the palm so ultra high net worth individuals from china own the most real estate so there's definite when you look at all countries for of high net worth individuals that is typically what they buy luxury property however there is definitely a kind of sweet spot around five to ten million dirham where chinese buyers come in and buy maybe like one luxury bedroom apartments in downtown so it tends to be either waterfront or it tends to be in downtown or marina but definitely on the higher end they're not buying the international city likes of apartments and finally in terms of institutional investment you're talking about people individuals coming in buying an apartment whatever their budget is be it a million 10 million 100 million are we seeing chinese fund managers coming in and saying you know what I'll have a tower block in Business Bay. Yeah, you've definitely seen that already this year. And this is why I'm thinking that next year is when we'll see, you know, um, retail investors come in. But in regards to institutional investors, we've seen people take uh, investors taking out whole floors in buildings as well. So that is something we've seen this summer. And again, I think we'll see as we head further into next year as well. Right. Number two, luxury real estate prices. They've been booming lately. And you say, bold call, they will continue to grow even after a growth of 50% from 2021. How do you justify that? 
Um, it really comes down to the supply. So when we look at upcoming supply in luxury units, it's still so limited, so constrained. There's still not enough supply coming in. And the supply that's being introduced isn't going to hand over until 2025, 2026. So available units on the market right now are very limited. Define Pro- luxury. So if you look at luxury, you're looking at over 10 million dirham uh, or $10 million for ultra luxury prime real estate. So when you look at over $10 million, that is where you don't have many options available. And the inventory coming in, it's selling out. So that's where you look at uh, Jumeirah Island, Jumeirah Bay Island, and all the new uh, communities coming in, even on the Palm. So it's limited supply coming in, which is why I think the prices will continue next year. Now, are we going to see another 50% increase next year on luxury property? I don't think so. But I do think we will see uh, increases next year across luxury. Who's going to be buying? Buying luxury, I think we'll stick to Europeans. I definitely think, like I say, we'll have Chinese coming in buying luxury real estate as well. Will we have Russians as one of the top investors? I think that is likely to continue, especially in H1 of next year. Third top trend for next year, Dubai real estate will weather the global economic slowdown due to many factors, including a supply-demand imbalance. I'm going to play devil's advocate with you here and say global economic slowdown coupled with rising interest rates is going to be challenging for any real estate market and Dubai will be no exception. Tell me why I'm wrong. So interest rates, when we look at the total transactions that take interest rates to begin with, only 25% of transactions in the market in the market are mortgages. So What percentage, sorry? 25%, because that includes off-plan transactions as well. So when you look at that, interest rates aren't going to have as much of an impact on the overall transactions. We have a lot of cash buyers, which again, weathers the storm with interest rates. Now, when we look at a global economic slowdown, agree, you know, we're not going to be able to completely shelter ourselves. However, Dubai is most definitely a safe haven right now. I think it offers a lot of opportunities for international investors to bring their money here. There's tax benefits when you look at rental yields compared to other areas. If people are looking for strong rental yields, Dubai offers extremely strong rental yields compared to other countries. Give me some numbers. So if you're looking at a net yield, you can get net yields in Dubai of around 7 and 8%. If you look at places like the Greens, JVC, uh, even Marina. So that is net, that isn't even gross. And when you look at other countries such as maybe... London, New York, you're looking close to 3 to 5%. So I definitely think we will see more investors come into this market next year. Will we see it as a growth that we've had double-digit increases and in transaction numbers we've had this year? Maybe not, but I definitely think we will sustain momentum in the market. Finally, I'm going to lump together your fourth and fifth bold, audacious predictions for 2023. Number four is that the short-term rental market will continue its high activity. That's basically what we might call the Airbnb market. And, and fifth, the remote working visa will be one of the most popular visas. And I lump that together because one of our top stories today is Dubai Tourism doing a deal with Airbnb to promote exactly this kind of thing. Explain your thinking. Yeah, exactly that. And I think it's great it was mentioned in the headline. So short-term rentals have done very well. A lot of landlords, the perception has definitely shifted to be able to um, feel more open to having their property a short-term rental. I think that will continue next year. When you look at the remote working visa and you look at jobs available on the market, LinkedIn came out of the report a few months ago saying that around 16% of open jobs in the US are remote. That's a really large portion of jobs. And if you're working remote and you have the opportunity to come to somewhere like Dubai where you can live tax-free, it offers you a really good quality of life. You can live tax-free. And again, what will that help? That will help short-term rentals and it definitely will help the long-term rental market as well. And that is a market that has performed extremely well over the last 12 months. And I don't see that slowing down next year for the pure fact that as landlords enter short-term rentals and limited supply, it's going to keep momentum in that long-term market. 
A final quick word on data on Hauser, because you do crunch the numbers. You're a portal, so you have a lot of data. What's the data telling you? So when we look at rents and short-term rents, prices are still increasing in quite a few of the communities. Uh, we've definitely seen a bit of a slowdown in the prices for rents across villas. What we are seeing on the apartment side, apartment prices are still increasing. And I think this is because what we did notice was... The, apartment you know, prices to buy. In Dubai, yeah. Yeah. But when you look at the rental market, for example, rental prices, again, still increasing uh, on the apartment side. They've stabilised on the villa. So it's very similar across both. But we have noticed that there's still more people looking further out. They don't want to pay the rental prices within the key communities. They're willing to move further out to benefit from lower rents as well. Sarah Hewardine, great talk to you. Appreciate your time this morning, Head of Marketing at Hauser. Thank you for getting in the festive spirit. Again, <laughs> if you're watching on Dubai TV, you can see Sarah's antlers. If you're not watching on TV, don't worry. We've got the photographs. <laughs> we, we've got the negatives, the preliminary sketches. So Sarah's antlers will be available <laughs> on, on Instagram, Twitter and so on a little bit later. I appreciate your time today. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Business Breakfast. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. I mean, we're talking turkeynomics again on the business breakfast but this time it's the turkey you take home well i've been invited for christmas as the turkey i am blessed they're gonna have me for supper and i'm gonna be their guest well i've been invited for christmas and i'll be dressed just right maybe i'll have some stuffing when i'm eating this christmas a man who is providing quite a number of those turkeys is Peter Green. He's the Director of Business Operations at Jones the Grocer and he's in to discuss the Christmas catering business with us this morning. Peter, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Brandy. So, Jones does a Christmas lunch with all the trimmings. What does your order book look like this year? Um, at the moment, uh, we're up by 9% across the UAE. Um, Abu Dhabi has uh, remained the same as last year, but uh, all of our growth has come from Dubai. If we were to chart a graph of sort of pre-COVID, COVID and coming out of COVID, what would it look like for people choosing to, to eat at home and, and have the turkey come to them? So we've been uh, lucky enough that during COVID, um, you know, people wanted to have that uh, special family lunch at home. So uh, in terms of the numbers, uh, we've seen steady growth out of COVID um, year on year. So it's been good for us for Turkey during COVID, good for us for Turkey after COVID, so is there any change in the size of the gatherings you're catering for? What does the trend look like? Yeah, um, what we've noticed this year is, you know, obviously an influx to stores uh, in terms of larger gatherings. You know, we've had uh, large family gatherings, celebrations. Um, our cooking classes, which is a key USP of Jones, um, has been filled this year, whereas last year and the year before we noticed that they had completely dropped off because of the COVID restrictions. So it's uh, quite wonderful to watch. Um, the kids in the store, the families in the store, and then the office parties as well, you know, returning to have lunches of 40 people in the store, you know, as a booking. So this is very good for us. So the office party's back? Yep, the office party's back uh, up in Abu Dhabi. We've had a few from the big um, corporate companies come in and, you know, sit down as a team. And this is something that was not there in the previous two years. Let's look at the, the logistics that you, um, as Director of Business Operations for the Global uh, empire that is is Jones, since we saw that big deal um, for us here. What you have to go through to actually get the turkeys? How early do you have to place an order, and and what kind of order are we talking? So uh, this year we uh, secured our turkeys around July, August. Um, there was a bit of a strain in the market because you know of the complications in Europe, uh, the shipping crises, uh, moving. Uh, you know the World Cup took up a lot of the freight, 
So that also put a strain on the um, pricing. But uh, all in all, there was an increase in turkey prices of about 25%. So it's important for us to be able to secure them as early as possible to be able to uh, secure the best price for our customers for the package. So. And where are you securing these turkeys from? Uh, from the US at the moment. So it's out in Utah. Uh, but, uh, you know, that was where the, um, the best quality was that we were able to secure. So, And how do you know how many turkeys you're actually going to need six months out? It's uh, forecasts and uh, I think uh, market experience is important. So, uh, you know, we locked in five tons of turkey this year. Uh, we've sold, as of yesterday, 4.8 tons. So our numbers were... Uh, Pretty spot on this year. So it's, uh, we've got the last bit. We're open until uh, this evening for Christmas bookings. So we're hoping to push the last little bit out. The last bird out the door. <laughs> yes. Right. Let's, uh, let's talk about that, that price rise. You said a 25% rise in the mm. birds themselves. Yeah. Why is that? What's behind that price uh, rise? So there's a bit of uh, you know, bird flu that's uh, you know, causing this. So that ate up the market. And then you know, it's the transportation, uh, the shipping. Everyone knows how expensive shipping has become. And, you know, we have to bring the turkeys in. So therefore, those those prices get pushed onto us. And do you pass it on to the customers? Um, this year, we haven't passed it all on to the customer. You know, we've, you know, we've, we've absorbed some of that. Uh, but there is a small percentage price rise as we had kept our packages the same for the last two years over COVID. So we couldn't sustain a third year of not giving a little bit back into the customer chain. So... It's not just the turkey, obviously. Sides are available mm. as well. Are you able to source much of that in the way of, of vegetables locally? Yes. Uh, so, you know, we have connections here in the market um, to be able to source these things locally. Um, our tomatoes, our carrots, you know, our kales, our, you know, they all come here now locally. It's been a big push for Jones over the last year, you know, taking on supply chain from the UAE. And what will we see from you in terms of other options? Is there any change in terms of what people want? Is it all just the traditional? Uh, turkey, this year we have got a lamb, a slow-cooked lamb shank as well. Um, it's, you know, it doesn't take on the, the position of turkey, but if people want something a bit different, uh, we do have that available. And, um, you know, obviously at Jones we have a lot more to offer in terms of our hampers, our cheese boards, our catering, and, you know, so much more, so... How do we compare? I mean, you've worked in a, in a number of, of markets. We were wondering earlier whether the whole, we can't be bothered to cook our own turkey, someone else can do it, um, trend was just a Dubai thing or is it, is it global? How, how do we compare to, to other markets? I, I do feel that there is more of a convenience factor in Dubai. Uh, people, you know, they trust us. It's, a, it's, it's an important thing at Christmas. It's a very emotional time. So getting it wrong is not an option. So, uh, but I do notice that more than most markets, you know, Dubai like the convenience of being able to rock up at the store on Christmas, uh, pick up their turkey and then add a few things to their basket. So I'd probably say more than most in Dubai than the rest of the world that, you know, they cook more at home. And talk, markets. talk to me about the logistics that you have to put in place for Christmas Day. I've picked up one of your turkeys before, and it's quite the operation in terms of parking queues, filing people from, from A to B, because everyone's coming to get it roughly the same time. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, we have equipment in place, extra ovens, extra people. You know, it's a, it's a well-oiled machine at the moment at Jones. You know, it's, we do Christmas. It's as simple as that. So we, we, we've got to get good at it. Before we let you go, and we've got a minute and a half left with you, let's see if we can get um, a bit of an idea of where Jones is going. Now, of course, it's globally 
based in in Dubai, originally Australian. Um, I noticed the other day that you've extended your terrace down on West Beach on the Palm. How much bigger can you get? Um, At the moment, we have uh, 32 stores across the globe. Um, We have another eight stores due for next year, um, already locked in, uh, four in Saudi Arabia. Um, We do have a few more in Dubai. And then uh, the big one is uh, we've signed up with Heathrow last week. Um, So we're going into the UK with a development agreement. And uh, this is on the way for August next year, which is going to be a massive site in T2 airport. So it's uh, very exciting for Jones Grocer at the moment. What can you tell us about that T2 development? It's it's just it's a huge site, 180 seats. It's got an express in front of it as well. So as you know, we've got an express model, a Jones and Grocer model and a Jones social model. So the three brands on this one, we have the two. We've done something similar now in Doha uh, just a couple of months ago where we have a Jones social and a Jones express. And uh, it has pre- performed extremely well over the World Cup um, period. So we're very happy with the performance and looking forward to do the same in the UK and uh, many more. Well, good luck. Peter Green is Director of Business Operations at Jones the Grocer. Thank you very much for coming in and talking turkey with us this morning. Thank you and Merry Christmas to you guys. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.